This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com galaxy and entering the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr-Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 254 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is veteran game designer Sean Patrick Fannin. He's worked on many pen and paper role-playing games, including Star Wars, Champions, and Shatterzone. And he's also the author of several nonfiction books, including the Fantasy Role-Playing Gamers Bible. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new game, Savage Rifts, which takes the classic Palladium game Rifts and converts it to the Savage Worlds rule set. Last year, a crowdfunding campaign for Savage Rifts raised over $400,000 on Kickstarter. And today's show is brought to you by Casper. If you need a new mattress, just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. The mattress industry is famous for forcing consumers to pay high markups, but Casper cuts out the cost of resellers and showrooms and passes that savings directly on to the consumer. Your Casper mattress will be shipped to you in a small box, and all you have to do is open up the box and watch as the mattress naturally expands to its full size. Casper mattresses are made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, their breathable design helps keep you cool and comfortable all night. I've been sleeping on a Casper mattress for over a year, and let me tell you, your first night on a Casper mattress will make you feel like you just rolled a natural 20 and absorbed 5d6 points of mega comfort. You'll want to tear up your old mattress like it was reality being torn apart by Cyclopean terrors from the rifts. So just head on over to casper.com galaxy and order today. You have 100 days to try out the mattress, and if you decide not to keep it, Casper will give you a full refund. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. Terms and conditions apply. So remember the address is casper.com galaxy, and you should also use the promo code galaxy, which will get you $50 off any mattress, and also let Casper know that you heard about them here. All right, so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Sean Patrick Fannin. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. Okay, so I told you that I was a big fan of riffs growing up, but that was all before the internet. And so I never really had any idea of who made the game or where it came from or anything like that. So it was really interesting for me this past week, I was reading the Fantasy Role-Playing Gamers Bible, and you talk a little bit about the history of the RPG fields and Palladium and stuff like that. And I was wondering if you could just uh, expand on that a little bit, because you say that Palladium, you call it a true labor of love from the beginning. And I was just wondering if you could talk about why do you call Palladium a, a labor of love? Well, I mean, uh, I'm going to have to sort of cover it in, in the broadest terms. Uh, I don't remember all the absolute details, but uh, one of my superpowers, the joke is that I'm friends with everybody in the games industry. And one of those people is Kevin Sambita. And Kevin started out, of course, as a uh, uh, old school, very from the very beginning role playing fan. Of course, like everybody else, he started with the Dungeons and Dragons rule set. And he had uh, a rather expansive gaming crew that he hung out with in Detroit. Uh, there's this Detroit Rec Center or something. I don't remember the exact name of it, but it was a, a fairly large area that a bunch of, of kids, everybody from underprivileged to middle class, would go and hang out uh, frequently at this place, especially on the weekends. And Kevin would run these giant games, sometimes, uh, you know, standard group of five to six players, but sometimes I think like 12. At one point he was running 30 people and he's like having to run back and forth between different tables to 
handle stuff just because he had himself just such an enormous passion for gathering people together and running giant epic stories for them. And that's where he came from, uh, is, is, is running these big groups and these, this, with this community around the Detroit, Michigan area. And of course, he also had the, de, the, the design instincts early on. He wanted to take what they were playing with and make it more of what he wanted. So he worked very hard on crafting a rule set that better reflected the style and the feel of what he wanted, which is really quite frankly how a lot of us get into the role-playing game design industry is we have a passion for the, the hobby and a desire to express how we'd like to play. And Kevin was one of the first people from, uh, from that, that, that kind of person that, that, that did that. So that's where the palladium system comes from is exactly that a labor of love on his part. And then once he had his core engine, he just expanded on that. He, of course, had the Palladium fantasy setting, but then he started having his characters that he was running crossover into other places. And that's kind of where Rifts evolved from was this idea of okay, multi-dimension. Well, 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 I want to back up a little bit because um, I want to talk about how he started publishing in the first place, right? Because he has this gaming group. Right. And then how does he go from that to publishing his first RPG book? Um, as I remember, uh, as I remember how he told me, um, he had these ideas. He had the stuff that he wanted to do. And he actually did talk to a couple of publishers. But the deals they wanted to make did not appeal to him. He didn't think they were a good idea. He happened to have some fairly smart people in his life. Uh, he shared with them what the, the deals were that were being offered. They all looked at it and said, that just doesn't look like a good idea. Uh, it looks like maybe we could do this ourselves if we got the right resources together. And it was quite simply, you know, I think I could do this on my own. <laughs> I think it really comes down to quite, quite frankly that. Well, you say that his first book, The Mechanoid Invasion, uh, almost ended the company. It, it didn't sell well on its initial release. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, he, he uh, Back then, you had to really make a serious risk investment. Uh, you had to come up with the capital resources to pay for a print run. And then you had to find a way to store those books somewhere. And then you had to uh, bring boxes of them with you to conventions or try to convince a distributor to uh, then pick up and sell those into the retail channels. A lot of work involved in that. And most of us had no clue what we were doing. So... Fortunately, the distributors tended to have and still do have experts who's like, well, I know you're not really a business guy, but you know, this is how it's done. Uh, but, you know, well, there's a lot more smart people doing it now. So there's kind of a established business model. But back then they were still kind of figuring it out. But Kevin was brand new trying to figure out how to get his books into distribution, trying to figure out how to manage all of that. And, you know, that kind of investment, if you don't sell the books and you don't have a good foundation to kind of give you some breathing room, yeah, that can kill a company right off the bat. And he was just running this out of his house. He said that his back porch was kind of his uh, warehouse, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah, no, he was doing it like a lot of us. I mean, the very beginnings of this hobby, you've got Gary Gygax running it out of his basement and his front porch. So it's exactly that kind of thing. And then Kevin was no different at that point. And you say actually that the mechanoid invasion was it was right at the cusp of this big boom of um, Japanese anime and giant robots, and it was maybe just a bit too soon that that you know that that Kevin was had kind of caught on to that trend, but not enough people had really latched onto it at that point to, for there to be enough of a market for that book. 
Yeah, he was a little bit ahead of his time. Uh, that that happens to a lot of uh, of, of great creatives uh, in pretty much any medium, but the RPG industry especially, it's, that was true. I mean, for example, a great example of that is the original Castle Falkenstein, which is essentially steampunk, but it came out so ahead of the curve on you know when people became aware of and excited about steampunk. So you've got that repeating theme happening in our in our hobby where somebody really cool and clever and intelligent uh, puts together this idea because they see this cool thing and they want to get it to market and the marketplace isn't ready for it kevin ran into that with mechanoids absolutely yeah and so then he um he kind of gets the idea i mean it sounds like he was publishing these supplements that were kind of system agnostic you could use them with any you could use them with dungeons and dragons or any other role-playing game you were playing there were lists of weapons and things like that right the, the 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 actual one of the most beloved books in anybody's collection now is that palladium weapons the medieval weapons uh collection uh I'm forgetting the actual exact name of it right now, but I have a copy of it. I could go find it right now, but um, it is a it is now a cherished. It's you know it's hard to find, but it is a cherished book because it is one of the most elaborate, detailed presentations of like every possible you know pre-gunpowder weapon that you could you know imagine, and then you know he stats it out of course uh, according to Palladium rules, which skew close enough to d20 that a d20 fan could easily reconfigure that for almost any iteration of d20 uh, but other people could also take that information and then retranslate it to whatever rule set they wanted to play with so it became a really great tool for players for game masters and for uh, burgeoning game designers then of course he went on to do a modern weapons compilation as well almost as beloved right and then you say also around this time he did this game heroes unlimited which i certainly remember you know, I, I love that when I was a kid, uh, all the different, you could play basically any kind of superhero you could imagine. Yep. And that became the gateway to probably one of his greatest successes. I mean, Heroes Unlimited was itself awesome and people really enjoyed it and had a great time with it because superheroes, obviously popular, not a lot of different options for playing superheroes. Uh, and you, you, you still have uh, the champions um, system is, is out there and people are excited about it, but it's still growing. Uh, so there's still some vying for which superhero game is going to be the one that people really get excited about. And Heroes Unlimited definitely made its mark. Right. And so then it sounds like a really good business decision he had was to start licensing the rights to other properties. Right. So the so one of the big ones he does is Robotech. And then it's kind of like it's sort of like Mechanoid Invasion. But now you have this whole Robotech audience that knows what it is and can, um, you know, find out about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, there's a lot of right place, right time. Good, you know, there's good timing, there's bad timing. Mechanoids, obviously bad timing. Robotech, excellent timing. Uh, he had the ongoing misfortune of dealing with a property that has some confused ownership issues, uh, but he navigated that brilliantly. He happened to talk to the right people to get, uh, the ability to, to publish Robotech RPG material and, uh, still does. So, uh, he managed to get that at a point where they were interested in how they were going to access the American marketplace. And he was gaining uh, something of a knowledge uh, base and a reputation. And he just he had such a passion for the setting. He knew how to talk to them about it. Right. As a, he could go to them and say, I know this. I understand what you're doing. I have these things. This would be really exciting. Uh, you know, so he just happened to know how to talk to them and happened to be the guy who did talk to them. Uh, at exactly the right time. And of course, uh, there's another property that he 
was very prescient about mm. that came along after that, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. And you say that he – obviously, that became this gigantic media property, but he licensed it, I think, when like issue three had just come out of the comic book. It was really, really early on. Yeah. So a lot of business in our field, in the geekdom world, uh, happens at conventions. And a chance meeting between a couple of people or a handful of people at a con can turn into this amazing opportunity just because they happen to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, so Kevin just met Eastman and Laird, uh, said, hey, I think this is pretty fantastic stuff. It looks really cool. I got this cool uh, game that I'm doing some stuff with. Want to give it a shot and see if we can uh, expand your fan base a little bit with a role-playing game? And they were like, hey, sure, that sounds like a great idea. We're not doing anything else. Sure, role-playing game, why not? And then history. Right, and it sounds like it was a pretty clever strategy, too, because he says this is his. this was his plan to get the role-playing game books into comic book stores that a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle book, since it was based on this comic book, could ha have kind of this crossover appeal and comic book stores would shelve it. Yeah, he was, uh, he was dead on with that one. He, now, Kevin was a comic book fan from day one. Even his fantasy stuff had a comic book feel to it. Uh, and he is an artist himself, uh, hung out with other uh, comic book artists or would-be comic book artists. The comic book style is pervasive through everything that he does. So it's uh, hardly surprising that he would be looking at uh, what he could do to create a crossover between comic books and role playing. And yeah, he was one of the, the groundbreakers there. He's the one of the ones that you know was able to convince some comic book store owners and distributors into the comic book field that this was something that should cross over. So TMNT had a huge impact there. Yeah. And you say that when the Ninja Turtles really blew up huge, that there was a period of time where this role-playing game was the top-selling game in the field. It was outselling Dungeons & Dragons, which just was just like unimaginable. Truly, truly, yeah. Uh, at that point, he showed the rest of the industry that it was entirely possible to do something that wasn't D&D &D and could be awesome. Uh, that was a major threshold. Uh, there's a, at that point, it became known to not just creators, but to distributors and to retailers, because at this point, you know, the... The physical distribution and retail marketplace was still absolutely number one vital. There was no significant channel of sales that could compete with that. I mean, secondarily, publishers going to conventions or, or other events could set up a table and sell books, but that was entirely tertiary to the distribution model. And opening up the distribution uh, marketplace to the idea that carrying something other than Dungeons & Dragons in more than just tiny, minuscule numbers, was potentially worthwhile. So Kevin gets a lot of credit for making it possible for the publishers to really step up, and as long as they could do something of quality or interest, they could then you know, get the distributors to talk to them, and they could get retailers to go, you know what, I should carry some other stuff, because look what that did. Right. I want to mention Eric Wujic here, too, who actually I think was the main writer on the Ninja Turtles book. Mm -hmm. And he was, I think, was he like a co-founder of Palladium or he was very heavily involved from the beginning, right? I think, right? It's trying to establish a formal, you know, black and white uh, relationship of anybody at that time is going to be difficult because you got to realize how much of this was based on, you know, a bunch of friends getting together. You know, you think back to the old Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney movies. Hey, I have a barn. Let's put on a show. It really 
kind of was like that for so many, including the very beginning. I mean, the original TSR was just a bunch of friends who all threw in what they could. Hey, I don't have any money, but I can do this. And that's good. Hey, sure. We love you. Come on in. And it's kind of that for years uh, at the beginning of the industry. And quite frankly, there's still companies that operate exactly like that. You know, a bunch of friends who get together and want to do something fun. Uh, none of us do this because we want to get rich. We do it because there's passion. That passion creates these great friendships and relationships. And everybody just kind of puts in what they want to do. And over time, the talent of a particular person will bubble up and, you know, maybe their role will enhance or increase. But Kevin certainly was the guy who would gather his friends together and the people that he loved and cherish their talent and find ways to try to leverage that into into something successful. And Eric was absolutely top of the heap in that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so so they've done Ninja Turtles and Robotech and superheroes and you know, pretty much like, you know, medieval weapons and fantasy and all this stuff. And so at this point, Kevin kind of thinks to himself, I should just do a game that can provide a bridge for all of these things and you can just do anything you want in this game and that game is riffs right well again going back to the very beginning you know when he was running the games at the the detroit center uh he loved doing crossover stuff he loved doing mashup stuff so you know palladium his palladium fantasy crew his like the main heroes he'd already sent them on these cross-dimensional adventures to post-apocalyptic earth and all these other possibilities so really, he did what, quite frankly, we all do. We take the best ideas from our days as a game master and creating stories for our friends and see if I can turn that into something I can publish. Uh, I've done that repeatedly. Most of what you see from me is, is uh, along those lines. And uh, that's what Riffs is. Riffs is an evolution of that. Now, it is a professional evolution of that. It is not just, well, I'm just going to take my cool stuff and write it up and hope people like it. He actually went in and delved in and said, so what would this look like? So it was designed and crafted for exactly what you said, a way to mash up all the stuff, you know, all these great ideas, uh, and also, uh, required something of a, of a, of a, of a solid redesign that kind of implemented all that. But I mean, he'd already had the mega damage and giant missile combat damage and everything from Robotech. And he mixes that in with all the rule stuff that he has come up with for his superheroes and for his fantasy and for those compilation books and everything else. So, And really, there can be no denying the influence of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, on the on the development, uh, different ways that you could pull all that kind of stuff together. In fact, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle material <laughs> ends up weaving into the Rift setting just like everything else did. So it all kind of gets intermingled. But... Yeah, that was his decision was, um, I don't see anything else quite like this in the marketplace. So let me see if I can throw this out there and make it stick. And you say at the time there was kind of this this wave of what you call attitude games that Riffs kind of falls into. Could you say what you mean by attitude games? Well, it's funny because uh, if you're a professional wrestling fan, uh, this kind of goes back to that. And I was actually sort of making the observation of the parallels between wrestling fandom and uh, RPG fandom. And quite frankly, the crossover there would surprise some people, I suspect, and then not surprise a lot of those who were fans of both during the time. But uh, so, you know, WWF, and that's what it was called at the time, the, the World Wrestling Federation had the Attitude Era, as they call it. And that was, you know, Degeneration X and Raw and Cool and and uh, Angry and Snarky and, you know, those kind of stuff. Um, and you kind of see that pervading through game development and game publishing at that era, I mean, at that time. 
So a little bit more style, a little bit more flash, maybe a bit more black than white, a little bit more, you know, buckles and spikes, um, you know, a bit more, uh, I'm not sure how else to explain it, but it, it didn't have the, the classic, I'm the hero and dressed in the shiny white and, uh, you know, there's our demonic evil and opponent and all that. It was much more, I got leather and buckles and spikes and maybe a baseball bat wrapped in, you know, a wire or a very, very large gun. Uh, and, uh, sometimes maybe I want to drink a lot and, you know, go and, and, and do adult things in a store, uh, or in a, in a, in a town. Uh, but I'm still kind of the hero of the piece and I'm going to go and these much, much worse people, I'm going to shoot them in the face or hit them with a baseball bat. That's the kind of thing I mean is that you kind of are moving away from the, more classical mythic presentation of hero versus villain and you're getting much more into this look and feel that we see pervaded through the comic book industry of course with image you know lots of pouches and guns and blades we see it in the wrestling you know culture we see it in in, in other media you know cyberpunk is becoming a serious influence over uh, media across multiple venues you know, chrome and blades and guns and, you know, live fast, die hard. Uh, all of that sort of melds into this attitude that you see flowing into game design at the RPG level and even in the early computer game development as well at that point. But uh, Rifts, I think, is a fairly solid example of exactly that. And you look at the juicer, you look at the crazy, you look at some of the characters that are front and center for those initial releases you see this very, uh, uh, you know, punk aesthetic that just stands front and center. Uh, and Rifts really exemplifies that in a way that you had not seen in a role-playing game uh, before that period. No, I totally agree with that about the, the plating books that just had this edge to them where, I mean, pretty much your, your parents hated all role-playing games, but they hated Rifts the most. You know, it had that kind of like heavy metal you know, uh, feel to it. Uh, I, right, going right back to the actual animated movie, Heavy Metal. Absolutely. I mean, Heavy Metal could almost be, you know, Riffs the role-playing game as an animated movie. Uh, and you're exactly right. Uh, yeah, parents hated... It's funny, you look at all those old Riffs books, you'll see the warning, uh, you know, this book gets into the supernatural, blah, 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 but this is all fiction. And I mean, you put that in there to try to make some sort of statement that this is just for fun, but that didn't matter because uh, any any parent who picked up that first Rips book with the barely dressed women with the crazy uh, eye goggles and the giant, you know, slavering monster who's clearly the slave lord of these uh, uh, basically very objectified women, that's the cover of Rips. And we're all buying the hell out of it because, holy crap, that looks awesome. And our parents are going, what are you doing? You will not buy that. I will not have that in my house. <laughs> Well, well, right. And, and it, it definitely is sort of like the objectified women and everything. But if people haven't seen the cover, you might be imagining something super cheesy. And the art is actually really, really oh, good. It is. It is. That's one thing that Kevin absolutely got perfectly right. He did not skimp on his covers. Uh, he made sure that his color plates and the, and the most exemplary, exemplary art of his product line uh, showed the highest level. Uh, I mean, there are people who are like, well, he does a lot of black and white line art, blah, blah, blah. So it's really good black and white line art and people really, really like it. 
And quite frankly, as long as you have that gorgeous, amazing cover that, yes, sets off alarm bells for a particularly conservative mindset, but for everybody else, it's like, wow, that's just amazing. And it's not TSR. Because at this point, TSR and then Wizards of the Coast, which I think by this point we already deal with Wizards of the Coast, um, or we're very soon going to be. Um, you know, yes, they're the, they're, they set the standard. No question about it. But again, uh, as before with the, I can put out a book that sells as well or better than some of the, the, the DD stuff. Now you're seeing products. Uh, White Wolf is another company that exemplifies this and White Wolf and Palladium both are kind of in completely different directions doing the same thing. They're bringing other players in. They're bringing other people in who are not. They don't want to play Dungeons and Dragons. They don't want to play I'm a I'm a I'm a thief or I'm a fighter and I'm going in a dungeon. They want to do something different. Palladium, White Wolf, and a few other companies are are showing them with amazing art and amazing uh, overall presentation, uh, as well as with this game that lets them do something just completely different. Right. So so let's say what for people who haven't who aren't familiar with Rifts, let's just say what it's about, basically. So there, it, it, the story starts with this big Armageddon, right? Talk about right. that. Well, um, I frequently have to try to explain this uh, because of the, the current product line, and I, uh, my favorite phrase for it is it's, uh, it's, a, it's a, a role-playing setting that features anything and everything, including a fully weaponized kitchen sink. Hmm. And actually, they had somebody write up a weaponized kitchen sink for the game. That was really funny. Okay. Um, but the idea basically is uh, it is a post post apocalyptic mashup of every conceivable genre and and fictional activity. Uh, when I say post post, there's post apocalypse, which is right after the apocalypse or sometime after the apocalypse, and everybody's uh, still trying to survive and uh, uh, figure and they out. They still remember the worlds before the apocalypse. Right, exactly. You know, there's still extensive discussion of the world before. So, and, and in Rifts, you have this. I mean, I got to give him credit. I've not seen a presentation of the apocalypse that quite does what Kevin did with Rifts. It's nuclear war, but that's just the beginning. Uh, <laughs> he went with this idea that the nuclear war released so much death energy into the world that it reactivated the ley lines, which, of course, are the psychic and mystic uh patterns that that surround the world and at their nexus points where these various lines cross these holes in time space ripped open and because they ripped open violently it killed even more people and then massive storms and hordes of demons and hordes of alien beings and who knows what else comes in and kills even more millions and millions of people and there's just this, and which of course the deaths of all those people creates this cycle. And oh my gosh, it's just insane. So he creates this combination of technological, you know, destruction of mankind that we we can actually conceive happening with this bizarre magical psychic wave element that further devastates the world, but also opens the world up to uh, interaction with what he calls the megaverse which we call multiverse, you know, omniverse, what do you want to call it? But basically it's multiple dimensions, multiple realities across time and space. So beings can end up on purpose or by accident in our world for any number of reasons. So you then follow up from that with a period of time in which what's left of humanity crawls back out of the darkness and starts rebuilding completely new societies you have these mega cities and these tiny little towns and everything in between 
uh, where humanity, along with what they call DBs or dimensional beings, you know, so, you know, one or two here or there, but sometimes entire populations of them, uh, taking up residence in some other part of the world or possibly alongside humanity, and trying to build all these different cultures and and these different civilizations. So again, back to the post post apocalypse. Now you have a completely different world that still has elements of the apocalypse, right? There's still devastated ruins and vast swaths of uh, frontier in which there's all kinds of crazy monsters, both mundane and supernatural and otherwise, uh, just devastating everything around them and making them, you know, only the bravest and strongest could possibly travel those areas. But you also have gargantuan cyberpunk style mega cities uh, full of amazing high tech uh, beyond our imagining super tech uh, capabilities or of arcane technology and arcane advancement that's just also kind of mind-blowing with gleaming spires and dragon lords. So all of it, every if you can imagine it, you can justify putting it in Rifts, and that's the world that Rifts becomes. I mean, one of the images from this that I've always just loved is this, this idea that the ley lines throughout history have been invisible and maybe nobody really knew they were there because they didn't do much. And then they get supercharged by all of this, by this uh, cataclysm. And now you can see them. They're like lightning bolts hanging in the air, stretching over the landscape and just shining in the night and everything. It's just, there's just something so just eerie and beautiful about that image I've always loved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really interesting color plates and stuff like that that exemplify that. We've got the adventures like up on a ridge and they're looking out and they're seeing that. And for the the new product line, we we had a lot of fun revisiting that that idea. So the the bluish white lightning bolts and the strange energy field and and various characters interacting with that in some way. That is an incredibly definitive aspect to the setting. Right. And then so another really definitive aspect of the setting is what's called the coalition states where they have mm-hmm. it's this. Well, what we talk about it, this is humanity trying to rebuild itself. Right. So not to delve too far into it, uh, but it is interesting. The commentary I get these days about revisiting the idea of the coalition in modern times yeah. <laughs> in the current era, because you are talking about a highly fascistic uh, society that did there can be no question it did save a huge portion of humanity the entire purpose of the coalition states was to gather human beings together in the face of horrible monsters and demons and all kinds of threats and organize them and create defensible positions and create a military capable of of defending humanity and giving it a chance to rebuild and thrive again coalition states did that in north america and at the same time, to do so, they, exe- they executed totalitarian rule. They uh, used classic fascist uh, models and techniques of uh, as long as we keep the population extremely ignorant and uneducated, they are easily manipulated and controlled, which we have to do to save them, but also, quite frankly, to maintain power. You, when you realize that the key family, uh, the prosex, actually admired Mussolini and Hitler and uh, other totalitarian uh, leaders from you know ancient history forward, uh, they said, well, you know, but they were crazy and they did it wrong, but some of their ideas are entirely useful. Uh, you realize that the core, the heart of 
of the leadership of this state is, or this empire, quite frankly, because the ruler is called an emperor, um, is is core at the core rotten, absolutely evil. I mean, Kevin says this you know, without you know, unequivocally. There's a lot of people like, well, you, but they're heroes and they save. You know, the average soldier, sure. And I actually talk about this in some of my writing about the coalition is that you know you can make uh, a heroic, uh, sympathetic coalition soldier or officer. Uh, you know. If you are honest with yourself, you can look back at soldiers in the Wehrmacht of World War II that were probably decent you know, people. They were fighting for the country. They didn't buy into the Nazi, you know, full, you know, I hate everything that isn't me. They were just trying to fight for the country. But that doesn't mean that the overall leadership wasn't corrupt and dark and, you know, just flat out dag nasty evil. So, yeah, they saved humanity, but at the cost of humanity's freedom and uh, what made uh, North America uh, special, that's all kind of gone. So there's a real interesting conversation to be had about what they represent uh, in terms of you know, politics and sociology. But, you know, uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, it, it's been said time and time again uh, in all kinds of fiction, but especially in gaming, it, there's nothing more fun than punching a Nazi. And, you know, that's the coalition kind of lets you do so in a post post apocalyptic uh, multi genre setting go punch some Nazis or shoot them in the face with a boom gun. And yet, there's so many fans who want to explore the other side of that equation. What would it be like to be one of these coalition soldiers? Should it be a unit of coalition soldiers who are fighting demons, are fighting monsters, and are trying to protect farmlands and people from the horrors of this still very dangerous world? So a lot of interesting stuff to play with there. Right. And the, you mentioned the amazing black and white art that's in the original Rifts book and the coalition lends themselves amazingly well to this black and white art because they have all these black skull uniforms and black skull robots and black skull spider robots and just all you know, skeleton robots and all sorts of just incredibly visually striking things, things that are, are very visually striking in black and white art. Yep. Yep, exactly. And it's funny because, uh, you know, the, the, the justification of course is, well, <clears throat> we use this to inspire terror and fear in our enemies and, while we're at it, we're also inspiring terror, fear in our population. And whereas we're not going to overtly say that, if you look at the, if you really read into the deep history stuff, you know that <clears throat> that is what Joseph Prosek, who is Carl uh, Prosek's son and the propaganda minister, uh, gobbles anybody. Um, you know, he absolutely intends for that to also cow his own population. You know, our military is strong and mighty and terrifying, so any thoughts of rebellion will be squashed. Uh, but yes, the visual aesthetic is extraordinary there. It kind of throws back to that. Uh, I don't remember the, it's a British duo that does comedy and is that, are we the baddies? You know, <laughs> look at all the schools and everything. I think we're the baddies. It's kind of very much that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so you see, so the, the sort of fascist parallels go deeper too than just the aesthetics and things, right? Because the, um, in their battle against these plainly evil demonic forces and monsters and things, They've developed this very anti um, this uh, ideology that's just anti anything supernatural or magical, or um, even not human. Yeah, and so actually you mentioned the um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I thought it was interesting because the um, I, I think what you're talking about is the Dog Boys, right? Where they have these genetically engineered human dog hybrid soldiers who have been engineered to kind of be able to sniff magic. So they use them as like the um, the drug dogs, you know, to to find the magical people lurking around. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's a, a very interesting point there because they discover 
the dog boys and actually they discover discover in what's called Lone Star, you know, laboratories in Texas that um, pre cataclysm, they were experimenting with uh, animal hybrids that were given human characteristics and, and, and made larger and were meant to basically be a servitor race. Uh, of mutant animals and they decide to incorporate them and it's just like throughout history you have this fascist state that diminishes or rejects anything that isn't humanity the the two key elements that everybody knows about the coalition uh within the rifts fandom is they hate magic of any kind and they hate anything that isn't human humanity first dbs or dimensional beings they are all evil doesn't even matter if they're evil or not you invaded our home and you must leave or we must kill you or we must otherwise uh, shove you aside. I mean, there's varying degrees. Absolute fanatics just want to kill all DBs. Less horrific minded people will be like, this is our land. You need to go away again. Start to see some interesting parallels to uh, not fiction. When you start to look at these attitudes and these ideas, you are the alien. You are the other. You don't belong here. This is ours. So that's all very endemic of of what the coalition is and what they fight against and what they try to purport. Having said that, yes, there are mutants that they look at as being, we'll call them the children of humanity and embrace them that way, but they're still servitors because they're not human. So the dog boys, they're loved. They're loved like pets, quite frankly. They're never going to have the same rights or privileges as a pure human, but they're they're admired because they're loyal to us and they go do what we want, including going out and getting killed against demons uh, to help us find said demons and kill them while we're at it. Same thing with the Psystalkers, Stalkers, which are basically a mutant strain of humanity. They'll hire or, or bring in Psystalkers Stalkers and uh, treat them kind of like pets, too. But they're a servitor race. Uh, you know, they have some tie to humanity, so they're OK. We can justify that. Uh, they're not they're not DBs, so it's OK. You know, psionics is another interesting thing. They will, uh, they hate magic of any kind. Anybody uses magic, they just need to be killed because magic is a threat to humanity and it just has to be stomped out. Psionics, as long as we control them, as long as we, you know, keep them registered, keep them under control, Psychor, Babylon 5, anyone? Um, yeah, they, then, then we can, we can justify using them because they do have useful powers that could help us fight everything else. So there's a lot of that interesting, We'll use what we have to and we'll figure out a way to control it for the betterment of humanity and the larger picture. But it's all kind of justification at the end. Right. So, so yeah, so all these coalition, the coalition soldier kind of stands out in my mind. It's one of the distinctive, really distinctive aspects of Rifts. And then another one is the Glitter Boys that I feel like anyone who is familiar with Rifts would know. Could you talk about the Glitter Boys? Well, uh, Rifts starts with the Glitter Boys. Uh, you know, as Kevin was thinking about what he wanted to do, one of the first character types that he intended to have in the game was the Glitter Boy. So they are right at the heart of, of, of it all at the beginning. You know, he envisioned them as post-apocalyptic warriors that defended humanity against the craziness and uh, went, you know, came into the current era as these kind of interesting, uber-mechanized Ronin warriors uh, you know, or itinerant knights uh, just wandering around finding somebody to help and save and uh, you know serve uh, to to protect others against uh, the various evil forces. So that's that's the glitter boy. It comes from uh, going back to the original uh, start of it all, right? The 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 final war. 
uh, humanity had developed all of this amazing technology for conducting warfare. And uh, the boom gun and the glitter boy armor was the epitome of one man uh, units that could go out and just do devastating, incredible things on the combat field. And the suits that survived, because they are incredibly tough suits, and the guns are, of course, highly advanced, um, they represent what survived from the old world that was now being employed in the current world uh, by individuals trying to go out and act like the wandering hero, uh, you know, very Campbellian, quite frankly. Uh, but instead of uh, a guy with his duster and his pistol or you know his suit of armor and his sword, it's this suit of power armor glittering in the sun with this gun that could shoot satellites out of the sky. So <laughs> they really kind of represent all, you know, everything that Rifts is, which is, you know, it's all cranked to 11 and ripped the knob off. <laughs> and that's what, that's what the glitter boy is. Right. I want to explain for listeners too, is that the, the reason they're called glitter boys is because they have this kind of, as you said, shining chrome armor that is engineered to deflect lasers. So these super powerful lasers just kind of bounce off of it. Right, and it has a strange kind of rainbow chromatic aspect to it uh, that, that you know, has this refraction. And it is definitely useful because a lot of the weaponry the Coalition uses are lasers. And then just the as you were saying about you know cranking the knob up to 11 and ripping it off, just the idea like, no, you've got such a big gun that when you fire it, you have to shoot pylons into the ground mm-hmm. and to have a jet pack to compensate for the recoil. Yeah, that's fine because when I run – uh, Savage Rifts. I, I, uh, the first time any player uh, uses the boom gun, I go through this sort of. I, I tell them, okay, try to imagine an anime sequence where you've got these flashing images and the camera moves from one space to another. So you go to the, there, you know, the, the camera goes down to the feet and these, uh, these, these claws stick out of the front of the boot and drill down into the ground. And then the camera flips around to the behind and you get this cutaway scene where you see this four foot long pylon with this laser tip that drills down to lock the heels into the ground and then you flip up to this giant jet engine pack that's on the back of the suit and it warms up and it glows and it doesn't have any propulsion capability its only purpose is to keep you from flying backwards when you fire this gun that creates such a powerful shockwave that anyone standing next to the thing is going to be deafened and possibly knocked unconscious and that's not a weapon that's just a, a byproduct of firing this thing and when it fires, it, it, it creates this immense explosion, but it's, it's thousands and thousands of flechettes uh, fired downrange in this basically hose of death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's known that there's almost nothing that's going to stand up against that except some other gargantuan, maybe like a, 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 a kaiju style you know, monster from the rift or one of the coalition's heaviest, you know, battle droids maybe or something but other than that almost nothing's going to survive this gun uh that's very exemplary of of what rifts is is huge action and huge crazy over-the-top results right and, and to make it clear for listeners this is not like this this is what we're describing this glitter boy is a player character and it's not a player character that you get to be when you're like level 20 you mm-hmm. start the game as one of these things Exactly, exactly. What are the challenges of, of Savage Rifts, as a matter of fact, uh, translating the, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that down the road, but I just was exactly that issue of, of you know, how to do that in a way that can, can be functional in this game system. Because in Rifts, you started out with characters 
that had these incredible powers and abilities. The Glitter Boys started with this very, very strong suit of armor and this amazing you know, city-killing gun. Uh, you started out with other characters that were super soldiers that that could run with Captain America and and maybe even you know make him jealous. Uh, you started out with magic wielders who could wield such forces as as you know a 20th level D&D wizard would kind of cry. I mean, <laughs> and you started as these characters. This was first level in a level based system. Right, and I think you mentioned mega damage earlier, right? Let's talk about that too, because this is also another sort of distinctive, uh, famous part of the Rift system. Famous, infamous, kind of depends <laughs> on who you talk to. Um, so Kevin wanted to address the concept of, of scale damage, and he had to when he was dealing with Robotech. Yeah, Robotech, you have people in these giant suits of, of uh, robotic tank-like armor that could fly or whatever with these guns that were meant to you know, be able to go toe-to-toe with flying, you know, uh, like cruisers and battle cruisers and stuff, uh, as well as each other, uh, piloted by human beings who also would get out of the suit and run around maybe with a, a pistol in their hand and, and have adventures and activities at that scale. But because it was entirely possible uh, to have moments where there's one guy in a giant suit of armor and other people running around in just normal personal armor, you know, he wanted to address... The, the conflict between those two and he realized that if he just you know had everything uh like well this thing does 100 d6 versus that thing does 20 d6 or that thing does 10, you know 5 d6 that's going to get really out of hand i can't that's not going to work so he decided to uh go with the idea of mega damage and mega damage was just a, a you know a direct you know mega factor uh of, of increased damage to the point that one single point of mega damage represented, if I'm not mistaken, a hundred points of personal damage or what they called SDC, structural damage capacity. So if something did 1d6 of mega damage, I was doing one to 600 points of damage, which basically meant if you fire even the smallest mega damage weapon or you, you'll use the smallest, you know, like a mega damage knife against somebody who's not wearing what was called MDC or mega damage capacity armor, they were just paced. There was not even a point to rolling. Um, you know, this was, it was meant to be, you know, if you're not operating at the mega damage scale, get out because you, you're not going to make it. Uh, this is, you know, where somebody could be walking down the street in the original risk rules with what looked like an old West style revolver, but it was firing mega damage bullets so it could go into the cowboy could go into an old west style town, and if it was built like an old west town, a couple of shots meant the entire town was now a smoking crater. So it got that ridiculous, and and you know people still playing original uh, Palladium riffs, and there's tons of them, thousands of them. That's just a truth that they accept is that you know there's two different scales, and either you are operating at the mega damage scale or you're dead. <laughs> it's pretty much how that was. Right. And I mean, you, you mentioned that this is obviously with all these vast powers in play, this is not the easiest system to run for a, a novice game master, right? And mm. certainly when I was a teenager, my friends and I would try to play the game and we had a heck of a time trying to figure out if we were playing it, you know, following the rules right or anything. There was the, you would, and you'd have stuff like, you know, I can remember one of my friends, we were fighting this, you know, this giant robot that had 16 guns on it or something. And he's like, all right, now I'm going to roll for the first gun. And now I'm going to roll for the second gun. And now I'm going to roll for the third gun. And 
I'm like, are, is this, are we, are we doing this right? Is it, you know, is it supposed to take 20 minutes for, for this turn to pass? You know, it was, it was, it was just confusing a lot of the time. Gameplay, game design from that era reflected a different aesthetic, a different idea. Um, and uh, this, 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 this conversation is fraught with peril because I, I you know, whatever I say here, you know, there's going to be a fan who's going to be like, how dare you? I love it that way. And really, it, let me just say this because it's important to be said. There's no wrong way to have fun. As long as nobody's being hurt, uh, as long as everybody's having a good time, you go, you be you, you do you and have a great time. However, you're not wrong. Um, those original rules, uh, along with uh, a lot of rule, system, rule systems that came out during that time, there was still a lot of growth. Uh, this was a, this is a very young entertainment medium compared to a lot of others, and it still is, even with as many years as we have under our belt now. So we're just now evolving into some new ideas about game design and some new ways to approach it that try to take the essence of awesome and fun and big explosions and cool guns and all those things that we want to play with but finding a way to exemplify them in an hopefully a less confusing way, a easier to implement way, a way that gets to the results faster with more emphasis on narration and story and excitement and then kind of moves on to the next thing without, as you say, let's roll all 16 guns and take 20 minutes to resolve that. So that was at its highest possible level. That was the game that you just described. It could be like that. And there were, and are fans uh, who can run that and really enjoy it. And, and they, they, they know how to do it fast or they have cool tricks and techniques to kind of get through it a little bit faster and good on them. But then for the rest of the hobby, there was perhaps a desire to take those amazing ideas and adapt them to something new. Right. And so this definitely leads in then to our conversation about Savage Rifts. Um, so just to set that up a little bit, could you just talk about how did you first discover Rifts and just talk a little bit about your background as a player with the game. Oh, sure. I go back to 1977, uh, the very first box sets of Dungeons and Dragons. The my, mine was the uh, I, I keep forgetting. I think it was the Moldavia one, but it was basically the, the front cover had a dragon sitting on a pile of treasure in the foreground. You had a couple of terrified-looking heroes looking at him. Um, you know, it just said Dungeons and Dragons, and then you open up the box, and there's this powder blue book with the same cover, but not in color, just powder blue. And uh, it, my box set had the Keep on the Borderland, which was one of the very first ever modules. And I didn't even have dice. They gave you these cardboard chits you could cut out and put in like a film, an old film canister to shake up. And you pull a number out and that represented D20 roll. Uh, so I go back to, you know, when Star Wars first came out and D&D first came out, uh, that's when I started. So for me, I was actually uh, one of the people who encountered Rifts when it first happened. Uh, you know, it came out, it was this big splash and I looked at it and like, okay, I got to try that out. I had other friends who wanted to play it. So yeah, I, I came into it then and, uh, it was interesting. I mean, the, 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 the concepts were so captivating and exciting, but if you try to dive in like any of us do, none of us wants to read cover to cover. All right. When we're kids, we're like grabbing the bits and pieces and skimming through and figuring it out as fast as we can and then diving in. So my first character was a tech wizard because I thought that would be really cool, but I didn't know what I was doing and you know, died within the first five minutes of the first battle because wow. Uh, so 
you know, you have to kind of struggle a little bit uh, figuring that out. So that was that was my first encounter with it uh, way back when. Well, actually, let me just say there, you know, I, I listened to this podcast called the System Mastery Podcast, just to give people a sense of this. And they had counted that there were 127 skills in the original book and that they, they this guy had – at one point he had tried to count all the character classes in Rifts, uh, including all the source books that he had collected. And he had uh, stopped counting at 440 character yep. classes. Just to, to give people an idea of what, you know, to, to, to actually hmm. learn the system, the sort of time commitment that maybe you're looking at. As of now, there are well over 100 books that are published that go, you know, our, our core rifts are, are absolutely part of the rifts megaverse. Uh, I, I think we're close to like 120 books now that you, you can play that are connected to and, and playable with, you know, and inside the rifts. And yeah, the, the number of occupational character classes or racial character classes, it's kind of nuts it's definitely one of those games where you you got to be a fan and if you are a fan then you want all the material because it's you know options 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 and, and again good for them however <laughs> there's a there's a large segment of the population for whom that wasn't necessarily or isn't necessarily going to be true um i had started working professionally in the games industry about 85 i was writing some games magazines and articles and stuff a little bit later, I hooked up with the Hero Games folks, and I started writing professionally for them for what became 4th Edition Champions, and I, I did some work for the original Star Wars, blah, 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 blah. So I started working professionally in the industry, uh, still playing, still having a great time as a player as well, and I always have been and always will be a, a role player and a gamer. But I had the the joy of, of starting to meet some of the professionals in the industry, and uh, I did meet Kevin Sambita early on. I met uh, a lot of great people early on, thanks to my relationship and friendship with the Hero Games folks, because it's a very friendly industry. We all are friends and buddies and help each other out and promote each other's stuff. It's one of the reasons why we love this business. Even though we're technically competitors, we're more interested in seeing everybody succeed. You, you, and, you, you unpacked some boxes for somebody, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's exactly true. That's how I got started. I, I showed up at DragonCon. I got some friends to give me a badge. I actually helped start that convention. I was on the original staff for it. So I had some friends who hooked me up with a badge to let me get into the the dealer's room early on. And, and the Iron Crown Industries folks, uh, or Iron Crown Enterprises folks, ICE, they were the publisher of Champions at the time. Uh, they were there along with uh, the Core Hero Games guys. And they were setting up their booth. And I wandered over with my my official badge and went, you know, started, uh, introduced myself to a couple of them and said, hey guys, I, uh, I'm with the convention, but I just want you to know I'm, I'm a real fan. I've uh, I really enjoyed playing with stuff. This is one of my favorite games, blah, blah. you know, the kind of fanboy stuff, but in as calm a way, you know, try to be cool. And I said, I'd be grateful if you guys would let me help you out. And he said, yeah, sure. No problem. And we started talking and, uh, you know, I would help them end up setting up their booth and they're like, well, Hey, you know, come hang out as much as you want. And then I, I said, well, if you don't mind, I, I have an idea I'd like to pitch made my pitch turned out they uh, couldn't use it because it was uh, called the final Reich. It was based on super Nazis and they had just had to pull uh, flight of the Valkyrie uh, from the shelves, which was a another book dealing with Nazis, but it was world war II time travel stuff. And the Jewish anti-defamation league had really had a bad reaction to this book and came out against it because it purported that murdering Hitler uh, at a certain point in the timeline would actually cause the Nazis to win and make the world worse. So these heroes had to go back and actually stop this other person from murdering Hitler and uh, changing the timeline. And the Jewish anti-defamation 
basically said, this purport, this, you know, this makes Hitler look good. Don't do that. You can't. And so Iron Crown was like, we don't want to deal with this. So we're just going to yank it and we're not going to touch Nazis for a while. So they asked me if uh, I had any other ideas and I didn't, but I immediately came up with the idea of a book of enemies for superheroes based on a theme. In this case, it was called High Tech Enemies. They loved it, gave me a contract and boom, that was my career. So <laughs> the start of my career. Uh, from there, uh, I'd written a few things. Um, I got suggested by a friend of mine to Prima Entertainment to write that book you mentioned before, The Fantasy Role-Playing Gamer's Bible. Via the auspices of that writing that book, which was the first, well, one of the first major books, I won't say it's the first, but one of the first major books uh, to try to collect everything you could talk about with the gaming industry uh, that's outside of one of the major game publishers doing it, an independent book, if you will. Uh I met a lot of people, and Kevin was one of them. So I, that was sort of the early start of my relationship with Kevin. And we've been friends ever since. So it you know, could be argued that if anyone was going to convince Kevin that it might be time for a new approach uh, to his world under a different rule set, I might have been one of the great, right guys to do it. And I think it could be said, obviously, I was because we did. <laughs> Well, well, right, because peop other people had had pitched this idea to him over the years, right, of of adapting the Rift setting to different rule sets. Yes, and here's the problem: you 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 are you are a podcaster and an interviewer and a and a reporter in this field, so you know as well as I do. We have our our socially interesting people, <laughs> and uh, some people just. Um, uh, are intelligent and wonderful and creative, but not necessarily always have the strongest social skills. And unfortunately, more than a few of them were the ones that first approached Kevin in a way that wasn't the right way, right? You don't come up and tell someone, basically, I'm paraphrasing, you know, your rules suck, but your setting's awesome. So do you mind if we take your setting and put it in some rules that don't suck? Well, you know, if you're on the end, wrong end of that conversation, that's not going to make you very can, you know, happy about working with somebody like you, you want to insult my work and then yet tell me that, yeah, no, thank you very much. It's just not a right way to go. Uh, it, it, it diminishes the work. It diminishes the fan base. It, 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 it wasn't the right approach. It's the wrong tone, totally the wrong tone if, uh, as, uh, uh, Christopher Walken would say. <laughs> so, um, I, I chose a different path. I, I basically said, Kevin, uh, you've got a huge fan base, years and years of publishing. Uh, this world's exciting, but we have a whole new generation or even multiple generations, arguably, of people who have not really encountered it because, you know, this is a system that came out in the 90s and we're now in this era. And I, I think it could be exciting to uh, represent the setting uh, with a new rule set to a whole new population of people and a very strong established fan base. That was one of the reasons why this worked is because Savage Worlds is an incredibly popular game system right now. Uh, it has a huge following and a huge fan base. And so, quite frankly, you know, the economic argument was as strong as any, which is to say, you know, your setting, new rule set that's got a established fan base, they will all buy the hell out of it. So, you know, kind of revives the setting where, you know, we can also promote the original works and, and, you know, give you some more sales of those. So the economic argument, plus the fact that Kevin and I are friends, I respect him. He respects me. All that came together to provide a, an opportunity that otherwise may not have happened. So, I mean, for people who aren't familiar with Savage Worlds, could you just say really quickly just where that came from, what, what the deal is with that? So Savage Worlds uh, is a really beautiful 
elegant core game design that evolved from the Deadlands role-playing game. Deadlands was a huge hit for Shane Hensley and Pinnacle Entertainment back in the day. Uh, it's still highly popular and beloved. Uh, Weird West, right? You know, kind of the Old West setting, but with magic and demons and crazy stuff going on with some really interesting, intrinsic uh, story elements. And he came up with a, a, a game design specifically for it that used graduated dice sizes as your your core, you know, how good or not good you are at something. D4, D6, D8, D12. The higher the die, the better you are. Um, that version was kind of involved and crunchy and detailed. Then they came up with the Great Rail Wars, which was a miniatures skirmish game they wanted to do set in the same world of Deadlands, but they wanted something that worked better for putting a bunch of models on the table and doing skirmish battles between these individual characters. And they wanted to make it possible for you to take your established Deadlands hero and put him right on the table and be able to quickly jump in and play. So they needed to craft a rule set that would take the essence of the character but boil it down into a much faster play simpler presentation so they kept the the scale dice idea but they simplified everything else and they realized they had a really good role-playing game on their hands that was far easier to run and far easier to play in fact some of them were like you know what when i run deadlands from now on i'm going to use this version instead and shane just grabbed that idea and said well when i get around to doing something else i, I might try to take this design and do something with it uh Pinnacle ran into some trouble. Uh, there was some things that went on. They kind of had to take a break from the industry for a little while. And then he kind of came back into the industry with this new rule set that he decided to open up as a, a, a not system specific. You know, some, some people use the word generic. Some people use the word universal. But a core rule system that could then be utilized for lots of different genres to include a new version of Deadlands and then the Rippers and uh, you know, seven, you know, the, the, or 50 fathoms and, and just all these different, uh, interesting settings, uh, pulp and horror and sci-fi and all these different ideas. So that is where it came from with the additional design impetus of Shane was like, well, we're all older now. Uh, we all want to play. Maybe we want to bring our kids in and play with us, but you know, I don't need to spend hours uh, trying to set up a scenario, I'd like to be able to jump in really fast and I'd like to be able to quickly craft characters and quickly play this game and get in a full session within a couple of hours on a given night. So a lot of what Savage Worlds represents is similar role that a GURPS or a Hero System or another universal generic, you know, play lots of different games with one rule set system might do, but with this added aspect of I can do this quickly, I can adapt quickly, I can jump in and play a one shot in just about anything quickly, or I can use this to easily create the setting that I wanted to and, and execute this cool idea that I had, which is how I came into Savage Worlds. I was friends with Shane anyway, and then I had this epic fantasy setting that I wanted to have a much more cinematic action feel, and I'd been working on trying to do D20. Uh, that just was not working out for me. He gives me access to Savage Worlds. I have a working player's guide in six weeks as a designer. So, boom, I was sold. So that's that's the that's the aspect of Savage Worlds, which is a very balanced game system that lets you do lots of different things. Right. So so the appeal then is that um, if you convert Rifts to the Savage Worlds system, all the Savage Worlds fans can play it. And for people who are new to it, it's maybe a little bit easier to get into than the classic Rifts rule set. Right. 
Absolutely. Um, so when did when did you guys start talking about doing a Kickstarter in this? Well, I mean, that's the model Pinnacle uses now. Any major project, they're going to do a Kickstarter. That's just, you know, Shane and, and, and the company has, you know, determined that it, it makes a, a powerful marketing tool. It's a, an excellent way to put a solid idea out there and get an initial funding and initial sales base, basically, you know, get, get excited fans going. It's just Kickstarter's a powerful tool for the companies who know how to use it and how to do it right. And Pinnacle's certainly one of those companies. It also serves the purpose of, is this going to work or not? You know, if it, if it falters, then you realize, okay, we found out that the fan base isn't all that excited about this. So we move on to something else. So it's, it's as much a marketing test bed as well as a capitalization tool. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, so it was really kind of an automatic, you know, once you have to realize when I first, sold Kevin on the idea of doing it. I had thought I was going to be doing it myself as a third party publisher because at that time, that's what I was with Pinnacle. Very good friends with them, you know, considered part of the family, but I was a third party. I was not part of Pinnacle. Uh, so I was going to do this with my own company, Evil Beagle Games, standalone. When Shane decided that this was something he really did want to get involved in and he wanted to support because you know, I still had to ask him, right? Saying, how do you feel about this? This is your system that we have an agreement that we don't do things unless we talk to you. He said, you know what? This has got to be Pinnacle. I'm going to bring you in and, and we're going to do this as a Pinnacle project. So the moment that was said and decided, it was going to be a Kickstarter. And and the Kickstarter, well, so talk about just what was the emotional experience of doing this very, what turned out to be a very, very successful Kickstarter like? Well, I got to tell you, I think it's easily the top 10 RPG Kickstarters uh, uh, of all time. Um, I, I haven't really run the numbers to know if it's like in the top five, but it's definitely up there. I mean, it's no 7th C, but what is? But it's definitely... It was up there. Uh, it's interesting because we ran parallel to 7C and we still did extremely well. Um, it was one hell of a ride. No questions asked. Uh, very, very exciting. Um, uh, Pinnacle approached it as they do everything uh, with a, with a, a rational conservative, uh, expectation base. And then when it started to explode the way it did, they were like, okay, um, <laughs> maybe we didn't. Okay. Maybe we should have. So what, what, what was we, the what was the original goal? Uh God, it was like five thousand dollars, I think. <laughs> and it hit that in seconds. I mean, literally seconds, uh, it hit its goal. And I knew it would. You know, I knew there was gonna be a huge influx right off the bat, because this was exciting news when it broke, which by the way, it broke well ahead of when we had intended for it to. Um that Kevin had just gotten excited and he dropped a hint uh about that another company was going to be doing uh a version of Rifts and RPG net exploded with speculation. And the problem is they were going off in all these different directions. If I, I made the argument that if we did not control the conversation soon, then no matter what happened, there was going to be a backlash because once the speculation went down multiple roads, whoever speculated and got excited about the possibility of another game system, they were automatically going to be antagonistic. Uh, oh, it's not the game that I thought it was going to be. Now I'm mad and I'm going to be, you know, pissy about this. And I just, I, I understand a lot about how the, the, the social media community works. It's one of my things that I kind of bring to a group when I'm part of it is I, I get that. I was part of the original America online gaming community. So I kind of watched all of this evolve over the years. So I immediately told the Pentagon, guys, we got to, we got to come out. We, we, we have to do this so that we can control the conversation. And we agreed and we did. So, Kind of move the ball along uh, quite a bit, but 
even then I, it was like, but we're still going to be conservative about how we approach this. Well, I had to come up with, uh, and we worked together, but they were like, so what are we going to do? And I came up with a rather interesting plan for how to handle, okay, we've got to have stretch goals now. <laughs> we have to have a lot more stretch goals than we had originally planned for. Uh, yeah, and, and and we came up with a great scheme. You know, there's no question about it. So we set up. You know, you want as as you mentioned earlier in the interview, so many occupational character classes, so many character options, so many cool pieces of gear and equipment. So I was able to basically set it up. Say, you, you want to see this awesome thing that everybody loves? Well, well, then this stretch goal, and it was just one more cool thing. So it made it perfectly viable to set up stretch goals that were still way well doable and would not put us in the overcommitment problem, which so many Kickstarters suffer from. Uh, I suffered from that with one of my first Kickstarters. I made a lot of mistakes over overcommitting. It's like, you're so excited, so I'm going to add this huge chunk of stuff if we hit the stretch goal, and that overcommits you so you can't deliver in a reasonable time. We came up with a scheme that would fulfill excitement while still being entirely doable and deliverable. But it was, it was a very different experience for a company that had done many, many successful Kickstarters. But fortunately, because of all that experience and the amazing people at Pinnacle, uh, we pulled that thing together and, and we had a very successful delivery too. Everybody's incredibly happy with what they've got and are now looking forward to the next batch. Right. And so it was it was $438,000 or something at the end yeah. of the Kickstarter? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, I think I think you're right. I'd have to go back and look. But I, it was, I'm sure it was... It was you know, there was discussion we were almost going to hit half a million. Uh, you know, we, we, we certainly weren't far. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so um, one of the, uh, you know, I mentioned that I, I read over these these new books um, that you released. Um, the Tomorrow Legion Player's Guide is the first one. And uh, what is it? The Game Master's Guide? Uh, Game right. Master's. So there's, yeah, there's the Tomorrow Legion Player's Guide, the Game Master's uh, Handbook. Handbook. And the, uh, our, our, or the um, Savage Foes of North America. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, one of the things that strikes you, obviously, is that you've created this Tomorrow Legion um, that is new to the Rift setting, right? Do you want to talk about your uh, rationale behind that? Well, uh, at the time, I was working very closely with uh, one of my very dearest friends, Ross Watson. He was actually the project developer, uh, partner for Evil Vehicle Games at the time. He's moved on to some other opportunities. Uh, and uh, that's all very, by the way, that's that's not a euphemism. That is an awesome thing. We'd, when he was offered the chance to go do this, we said you absolutely have to. And when you find out what he's doing, uh, if you're a gaming fan, you're going to be very, very excited. Uh, but he was with me at the time. And one of the earliest things that we talked about, uh, and we 100% agreed on this, was that we wanted to introduce the idea of an adventuring paradigm that uh, did not exist in the original Rifts. And this is uh, consistent with a lot of what Pinnacle already has done. You know, They have uh, the Twilight Legion and a number of their their settings that have sort of an interesting continuing parallel between them, uh, or they have other groups. You know, the Rippers is well known of the Ripper setting. It's a hero group, so a a functioning organization that gives eclectic, disparate heroes a reason to band together and do stuff uh, with a heroic bent. Yes, you're up against the worst kind of stuff in the world, and generally speaking, we're kind of giving a reason to team up and not be murder hobos. Uh, which was pretty much a lot of the way a lot of people approached playing rifts was high tech murder hobos. And we just thought, okay, that's done. Right. And you can play that way, but we're going to focus the, the energy and attention on, on this. And I called Kevin as soon as we came up with the, the title and the, and the, and the core idea. Uh, and of course it, 
people who know me knew it was going to be a particularly heroic group. I'm that guy. To me, the point behind these games is to be the hero that maybe you can't be in real life, that you'd really like to be in a fictional world. So I was going to definitely take a very benign, you know, we're the good guys kind of approach. And I called Kevin and we had a long conversation about it. And he fell in love with it immediately. He actually even said, this is something that has been missing from Rips all along. So this is a great idea. By all means, let's do it. Now, with the knowledge that anything that we created or do create for Rifts, it's it's going to be his, right? That was, you know, that, that it can't work any other way. I'm adding stuff to his property, and he's real excited to have the Tomorrow Legion as a part of the of the official Rifts universe now, or Megaverse now. So we created the Tomorrow Legion as an interesting story focus. Uh, we also intentionally placed its headquarters where we did in the in the map so that it is positioned in a wilderness area that's not heavily influenced by any one other faction so that they have some room to kind of be their own thing but at the same time they're surrounded to the north and the south you know is uh, you know heavy coalition territory to the east is is the federation of magic and other craziness and to the west more coalition forces as well as the Pecos Empire of, of bandits and uh, the vampire kingdoms further to the west of that. So all kinds of sources of conflict and, and, and people to fight against and deal with. Uh, while at the same time, uh, the focus is here's a reason for a bunch of strange, eclectic, individualistic characters to gather together and be put on a team and be given cool missions to go out and, and do. Right. And, and so this is the good guy's base, basically. And this is a real castle, right? In the You said? Yeah, it's really funny. Uh, uh, credit to Ross on this one. Uh, he had uh, come across in the in the Ozark Mountains. There's this uh, uh, place called Lead Hill, and uh, these guys tried to build a genuine uh, resort based on building a, a medieval style castle with the original medieval style techniques, you know, updated to to, to make sure of safety and all that. But they were going to go all in on this uh, and they were actually going to make the construction of the thing itself an event. You could come and tour while they're building the thing to see this, these classic uh, construction. I mean, it was a really interesting idea, uh, which completely fell flat. <laughs> uh, as far as I know, they never did find any investors or anybody to, to fund this. So you still have this foundation and really nothing else. And who knows one day somebody may come along, but we decided to take that and run with it. And uh, it's an interesting little Easter egg for fans of some of my other work. Uh, people have already tri- – I mean, it's been talked about openly now that uh, you know, a bunch of dwarves from another epic high fantasy world came through during a particular event uh, and showed up and, and they got chased out of the, the, the uh, Federation of Magic by demons and stuff like that. And then they came into the Ozarks, which felt like home to them, and found this foundation of a castle and said, ah, this looks good. Let's build. And the truth is they're, they're dwarves from Shintar, which is my epic high fantasy setting. Uh, the, the, the event that I make reference to is something that actually uh, Savage Mojo, who has the rights to, uh, to Shintar now, just did the whole uh, you know Tempest storyline. So I, I, I did a callback to other material and other stuff that people have enjoyed that, you know, do, that really points out the potential of interaction between known settings. I mean, Rifts itself, is a mishmash that allows you to connect to all these different settings that Kevin created for the Palladium Megaverse. Well, one of the things that we've kind of hit on without making a huge official thing out of it, but we definitely have made it clear to players and game masters that they should feel free to have fun with possibly using other Savage World settings 
as potential destinations or potential sources of stuff to come into their Savage Rifts game. And so that's where the dwarves from Shintar came along and, and built a castle on top of an actual real-world location. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Um, okay, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the actual sort of the mechanics of uh, translating the Rifts um, setting into the Savage Worlds rule set. And I thought reading the book, one of the things that I thought was the mo- one of the most interesting um, instances of that was the, the rules that you developed for the Juicer character class. Could you talk about sort of that process of making that translation? So let me just say, this is beyond any question, the most challenging design work of my life. Uh, I'm very proud of the work. Uh, I, I feel good about what we did. Uh, I feel good about all the great ideas. I mean, this was definitely a team effort. Uh, but yeah, I was, uh, I, I was, I was working under a number of different impetuses that at times were definitely conflicting and, uh, it was a real struggle to pull all that together. Uh, we wanted to create an experience that made a Rifts fan feel like they were still engaged with what they loved about Rifts. So it had been a possibility that we would do the whole you actually start out as something else and you build up to these power levels so you know the glitter boy pilot might be just a guy with some cool combat abilities and eventually he builds up to having a glitter boy suit you know the juicer might be just a super you know a low level super soldier and eventually builds up to juicer levels uh we explored that and uh, i tossed it pretty quickly and i i you know argued heavily that the the, the rift's expectation is you start out crank to 11 and then you go from there and that's what we have to do so that was one thing uh but we also wanted to have a chance to i mean this was a game that was designed in 1990 it's you know 2015 you know the 2010s and we wanted to update some ideas we wanted to say okay looking at these ideas what can we do to bring out the essence of them but do so in a way that maybe updates them to some cool new ideas uh, now that part, you know, there was going to be some real definite back and forth with Kevin. What's interesting is that every single time that we presented something completely new that was going to change uh, an element to how a certain aspect presented, he loved it. He was like, yes, 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 this is great. Kevin recognized that the chance to present new ideas that further exemplified the awesomeness of the concept was entirely righteous. So the juicer, I think, uh, is a great example that you bring up as one of the, the most important updates that we did. In the original rifts, the juicer's uh, death arc, as we call it, was just a role play in the background kind of thing. The idea is that the juicer juices is a you know the phrase, but basically they get this system put in their body that gives them incredible superpowers. I mean, they're like you know, Captain America times five or times 10 with super strength and speed and crazy abilities. But the trade-off supposedly is that they're going to die much sooner, usually within five years of the installation of the system. The, the, the drugs and everything is going to burn them out, which, you know, is a great narrative point, but doesn't have any mechanical importance. And, you know, most people are like, oh, I'm going to be a juicer, have all this power, and one day I'll die, but it certainly won't be in the context of the campaign unless I get killed, but then that could happen to anybody. So it's not really any different. It's just a thing I could sort of role play. And, you know, whatever, right? Or the crazy who has crazy stuff going on and isn't quite as powerful as the juicer. So really, um, unless I just want the role play aspect of being crazy, the juicer is a better character. You know, that's what it is. John Wick is a well-known figure 
in the games industry. Uh, you know, he's the guy behind Civet C and, and a number of other really fantastic properties. Uh, he lives down in Arizona. And there was a, a long weekend where a whole bunch of us got together, and we included John, uh, and I'm really glad we did. Uh, Ross and I had already been talking about we wanted to take something uh, about the juicer and make it a game-important element. And we were ex- examining some ideas with that. But John was like, you've, you've got to make it part of the game. It has to be something that the player can play with. You know, you've got to make it a game play element. And so I sat there and I was the classic, you know, pen and a piece of napkin at a restaurant. We were talking, I wrote, I sketched out some ideas and I, I threw it out there and we hammered it back and forth a few minutes. And then basically John said, if you do not use that, I'm stealing it for my next game. <laughs> so it was a really, and, and that was where the whole burn concept came from, which is a, 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 a number that the character has that represents their life force, quite frankly. Uh, so typical starting juicer character will have a burn number of eight and they'll have a burn die of D10. At the beginning of every session, they roll their burn die. If the burn die comes up at the number of their burn or higher, they are either going to have to spend a point of burn permanently, which means that number steadily goes down over time, you know, depending on the roll, or they're going to die that session because it, their time is up. Their last call has happened, and, and they're, they're going to burn out. So the player actually has some control. They get to decide, okay, yep, today's a good day to die. I'm going to go ahead and go out. Now, early on, they're probably not going to. They'll probably spend the point of burn. Now, that interesting added element to that, and it's completely different than what the original juicer experience is, is that they can also intentionally spend those points of burn during the game. They can basically overclock their system and get even more superpower for a moment. So they could spend their burn die, their burn to add their burn die to any roll, to a damage roll, to an attack roll, to whatever, to supercharge, which means they're intentionally burning out their life force even faster for more awesome superpower ability. And then the player can choose to take edges, called iconic edges in this case, that give them even more superpower things they can do with their burn to even encourage them to spend it more. So the point is, we created a situation where now your death arc, the fact that you traded your lifespan to be super powerful for a short period of time is a much more intensive part of the gameplay experience. And you actually play with it. You can spend it intentionally to be even more awesome. But it does mean you're almost certainly going to pick a session where you blow that burn die roll and go, yep, today's the day I'm going to die. And you're going to go out in a blaze of glory, which is another rule we added to the session or to the game, by the way, blaze of glory, which is when you die, you can do something totally awesome and not just, well, my character's dead. It's time to run up into the character. You actually get a narrative moment of awesomeness uh, to to exemplify your, your character's death. And I know a lot of game masters who said, I don't care whatever game system I'm running from now on, I'm using the blaze of glory rules because it means character death is meaningful. Hmm. Yeah, it just, it just seems really, really cool. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but there are on YouTube, there are all sorts of like real plays where you can see Savage Rifts in action and, and, you know, watch people playing it seems to be getting really good reviews. Um, seems to be getting just a really good from, from everything I can tell, it seems to be getting just a great response. Thank you. I've, I've, I'm incredibly gratified by the response to this. Uh, we, we set out, uh, I, I talked about the very ep- many impetuses behind what we wanted to do. One of the things we wanted to do was create a balanced game experience while still being rifts and that was the thing everyone thought was impossible and reasonably so because 
uh, Kevin and company said, look, you know, we decided early on that we weren't going to worry so much about balance. We were just going to create interesting characters. And it's up to you and the game master to make this particular character idea work in the context of what you're playing. And you might want to choose a set of occupational character classes that are relatively, you know, compatible with each other. And maybe nobody plays the glitter boy uh, because you all decide to play other types of characters. Or if somebody plays the glitter boy, either if you guys accept that that glitter boy and the Leyland Walker are going to be the ones that do the oh my God stuff. And you guys duck and cover until it's time to go sneak into a tomb and, you know, discover mysteries. And so they left it to the the, the players and the game master. And that's a, that's a, that's a valid approach, but it's not one that's been particularly satisfying for a not insignificant portion of the player base that, you know, RPG players represent. So I wanted to give them an alternative, which was, yes, almost any character type that you want to play can be reasonably balanced against the other types. You may not be the, the one firing the gun that kills everything in one shot uh, over in this space. But you're not going to just sit around waiting for a chance, you know, later in the session. They're still going to be awesome when your turn comes. Uh, the mechanics of Savage Worlds balance, you know, automatically gives that because the way combat runs, there's not one character doing 18 different actions while another one only gets two. Everyone's getting the same number of actions effectively. So that helps a lot. And there are other core mechanic elements that make sure that there's a certain balance to the gameplay experience that's just endemic to the way Savage Worlds plays. And then the other idea was to use the glitter boy and the juicer and the Leyline walker construct them to make them work the way that they should and then go back to the other character types the, the classic iconic types and yes we use the iconic framework to establish essentially classes in a game that doesn't normally use classes uh to to establish those front-loaded abilities but we use that structure and we went into the other types and said now what are we going to do to make these guys also awesome right from the start so the the, the, the rogue scholar or scientist or the city rat or the wilderness scout or uh, the, the techno wizard or the cyber knight. Uh, these are all characters that we went in and reconfigured uh, to keep the essence of what they were and what they, the, their story represented in riffs, but, you know, give them all the, the additional abilities and cool stuff that fit their concept to make them be able to stand head and shoulders with everybody else that's playing. That was really hard work. I won't lie. Uh, it, it took a lot of effort and a lot of play tests and a lot of feedback. Ultimately, uh, as you say, we got a lot of great reviews. I think one of the things that comes out most of all that, that I see all the time and it makes me feel great every time I read it or hear it. And that is that they balanced a game that no one thought could be balanced. <laughs> so pretty thrilled about that. Yeah. Okay. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, but I, I mentioned, I did really want to ask you, you know, I, I told you that I was, in addition to Rifts, the other two pen and paper RPGs I was really into were Dungeons and Dragons, particularly the Dark Sun setting mm -hmm. and uh, Eric Wujic's Amber Diceless role-playing game. Right. And there have been kickstarted, um, you know, they're not exactly, they don't have the IP, so they can't um, do exactly sequels or, you know, re new versions right. of them or something, but there are things kind of in that vein from people involved yeah we uh, call those the original we, we call those retro clones yeah um so the two i mentioned to you were um dragon kings which is done by timothy brown who was one of the creators of dark sun it's sort of it's a very dark sun like rpg and then lords of gossamer and shadow um is is using the amber diceless rules um and mm -hmm. sort of creates a new ip right because uh, and I'm, i was just curious if you um you know, what your take on those projects is or what you if you have any advice for people uh, doing this sort of resurrecting these or sort of um, doing new versions of these classic systems. 
Well, it goes all the way back to a conversation I had with a, a fairly famous game designer by the name of Greg Gordon. Uh, he's one of the original uh, minds behind uh, Torg uh, and the original Star Wars role playing and some other stuff. Uh, and it was an interesting conversation we just had on a philosophical level, uh, quite, and this is a number of years ago too, uh, about the fact that you cannot copyright nor can you trademark or otherwise legally protect a set of gameplay rules. Uh, there's a reason why you can have all kinds of different versions of Monopoly. There's a reason why you could do a checkers game uh, using, you know, different names for stuff. Uh, the, 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 the rules themselves is just a structural approach to how to play a game. There's no way to legally protect that. I mean, there's been attempts at some patents and things like that for like magic. And uh, so there's some specific exceptions, but they're so complex and bizarre that they kind of prove the rule otherwise. And pretty much within the role playing game industry, Everyone thankfully gave up on trying, which is why you could have all of these amazing D&D variant type games. And eventually, uh, during the third edition days, Ryan Nancy pushed forward the idea that let's just make it open. Let's just say that not only are they going to make a D&D style game or a D&D supplement uh, and not have it be officially licensed, but we're actually going to open it up and say that they can legally do it and put uh, a, a thing on their book uh, and just use this as a marketing tool. And so they embrace that. Uh, Pinnacle Entertainment does a similar approach. It's not open, but as long as you can present uh, a case that you could do a good job of it and make it look good and not be something that would be counter to the philosophy of Pinnacle Entertainment as a company, uh, it's relatively easy to get the permission to use Savage Worlds and put a bug on your book that says this is an officially Savage World licensed thing. So it's become a thing in the industry by which, you know, I want to use an established game system, a set, an engine, if you will, a set of rules. I'd like to do so in a way that's official. So sometimes I'll approach the company and see, but if, if that's just not going to work out, then quite frankly, there's nothing stopping me from taking this idea, revising it in a way that uh, makes it legally doable. Like I'm not using the same words. I'm not using the same terms. I'm using different words in different terms. Uh, and I'm using original writing, right? So copyright's still a thing. You can't steal somebody's, you can't plagiarize somebody's work, but you can present it. And if you do it cleverly, you can make it pretty clear. This is that famous, that famous game that you love, uh, updated to, you know, modern, you know, ideas and concepts. And we made a few changes here and there. Uh, you know, the, 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 the diceless one you're talking about. Absolutely. Lords of Gossamer and, and Shadow. It, it's, uh, uh, Definitely a love letter to everything that Eric did. Um, and at the same time, presenting a, a new concept. And, and Tim Brown, obviously, people who are fans of Dark Sun, <clears throat> oh yeah, it's Tim Brown. Well, we know he's the guy, right? So uh, it's Dark Sun, but it's not, because Dark Sun belongs to Wizards of the Coast, but they're not doing anything with it. So, you know, it's, some might say it's kind of a little bit dodgy, but the fact of the matter is, it's just all creativity, right? It's just, a new way of looking at it. It's a new way of doing it. Uh, you know, I'm working on something myself. Uh, I, as I told you, I started my career uh, in the fourth edition champions days and the, the world that we built with all the characters and stories I thought was powerful and interesting. And I was working on doing some more with it. Uh, then I moved on to some other things and champions itself has gone through a number of evolutions. Uh, and so that universe looks very, very different now. And that's cool. But for those who loved the original fourth edition era, I've gone, I'm, I'm working on something called Modern Gods and I've taken classic iconic character types, I've given them new names and new stories. But those who are fans will be able to look at him and go, oh, he's kind of a lot like so and so. 
And so it's a way to revisit things that people love without unfairly stepping on the established IP. Uh, in some cases, because the IP was left to drop and no one's going to do anything with it, but you can't get access to it, then it's a way to revive the awesomeness that was that thing without having to, you know, fight a legal battle with nobody, with somebody who, you know, you don't even know who to talk to. There's a classic case with um, tri the TriStat system, uh, Big Eye, Small Mouth, and the system that was used for that. Nobody knows who even owns that anymore, for sure. I mean, it's probable that some iteration of White Wolf does. But no one could ever find the paperwork on it. And I mean, I tried. I tried to get access to official you know, ownership of that and couldn't. But you know, I was flat out told, but you know what? You could probably just do a retro clone and make it yourself, uh, you, know, re re you know, rename everything and go forward. And that would be easier than us trying to find the paperwork. So it can literally come down to stuff like that. Hmm. All right. So, Sean, we are all out of time. So just uh, finally, I guess, is there, do you want to just direct people to your, your website or just things that they should check out? Well, thank you very kindly. Obviously, if you're interested in Savage Riffs, you should go to the Pinnacle Entertainment Group website, P-E-G-I-N-C, P-E-G-I-N-C dot com. Uh, I do a thing called Sean's Pick of the Day, uh, which is pretty uh, popular. People really enjoy that. Of course, I rebroadcast it to my Facebook page. So if you just want to friend or follow me on Facebook, you're going to get all that feed. Uh, but it's it's S-E-A-N-S-P-I-C-K-O-F-T-H-E-D-A-Y. So Sean's Pick of the Day dot com. There's evilbeaglegames.com. Uh, but really, the best way to find out what's going on with me and all the stuff I'm working on, and I do have a Patreon, by the way, Sean Patrick Fannin Patreon, uh, where I'm doing something with my Freedom Squadron project, which is G.I. Joe for adults, kind of, uh, and my Modern God setting, which I was just talking about, you know, classic superheroes. Uh, so, yeah, I should put my Patreon. But anyway, if you really just want to say, well, this guy seemed interesting, I'd like to see what's going on, friend me on Facebook. I'm one of only two Sean Patrick Fannins on there, and I'm the easy one to find. <laughs> Uh, all right, yeah, so everyone go find Sean Patrick Fannin. He promises it's easy. And so, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, David. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Sean Patrick Fannin for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Casper for sponsoring today's show. Remember that if you do decide to order a mattress, you should visit casper.com slash galaxy and use the promo code galaxy. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.